occasion of our 10th anniversary uh, to look at Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 25. Would you please stand with me for the reading of God's word? Please hear the word of God. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Amen. Would you pray with me? Our Father, as we come to this text this morning, we ask, O God, that you would illumine our hearts and minds, that we would understand it, believe it, and respond to it by grace through faith, by looking to Christ, and by your Spirit, seeking to serve you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. This very week, 10 years ago, Christ Church Presbyterian was born. I'd like to take the liberty of sharing just a little bit of the story of the church before diving into our text. Uh, By the way, you now know why I invited uh, Mel to come and to share with us this morning as we had a wonderful summary of... uh, South Carolina Reformed Church history, uh, of which we are a part. This church started with a conversation. It was at a conference in 2012, and uh, Dr. Rick Phillips, the minister of Second Presbyterian Church, walked up to me and said, "Um, John, I think you need to plant a church in Charleston, South Carolina. And I was 41 years old at the time, and I sort of looked behind me. I said, you talking to me? And uh, he said, uh, yes, I'm talking to you, and you better get this done soon because you're getting old. (laughs) So uh, he managed to insult me while he was inviting me to plant uh, a church. And so he he said this, and I said, wow, that's that's pretty big. I mean, Marla and I, we do have affinity with the area, and Marla lived there for eight years, and I played soccer here, and we met here, and uh, we've been here many times with the family, and so, well, you know, maybe this is somewhere we need to go. The area is growing like crazy, and uh, there, there's need for more of a reform witness here. So we began to pray. After a few weeks of prayer and counsel, Marla and I began to think that the Lord may just be leading us in this direction. And so we began to raise support. We met with the presbytery. We ended up selling our house, and then we finally said goodbye to our dear congregation of 10 years in Douglasville, Georgia, and we moved to Charleston in May of 2013. Some of you were were there during that move. In fact, Jake Biles met me at the storage facility uh, to help me get uh, things in and out of that facility, and so many memories like that of those who are here after all of this time and who were there at the very beginning. Christ Church was started through the prayers and support, again, of about a dozen churches and many individuals around the southeast not least uh, that of Second Presbyterian Church in Greenville, South Carolina. In every sense, in every sense, Christ Church has been a joint effort. It's a partnership in the gospel of fellow believers with a vision 
uh, to do that which God, of course, has commanded us to do in the planting and strengthening of biblical churches. We launched the work with a Lord's Day evening service downtown at First Scott's Presbyterian Church. How many of you were there for, on that particular Sunday? How many were there? So, we've got a few, a few of you. So, uh, we we see uh, how many are still here um, who were at that first service. First Scott's graciously and somewhat unexpectedly granted us the use of their historic chapel for the summer months. It was an amazing location. Uh, I told everybody, don't get used to this. It's probably never going to get better in terms of a location and a facility. After the services, we would gather in the beautiful courtyard, and we'd have lemonade, and the kids would be running around. We'd be fellowshipping and getting to know one another, building relationships. There was so much hope and expectation as to what God would do in Charleston through his word and spirit. I need to say from the outset that one of the greatest personal blessings of those early days was working with a newly minted Westminster Seminary California grad from Alabama named Ross Hodges, or as our seven-year-old once called him, Haas Rogers. <laughs> Ross and his new wife, Joanna, after both graduating with degrees from Westminster, got in the car and drove across the country so that they could be here for our first service. On Friday, uh, indeed, they drove eight hours from Alabama um, to be at this service, and we are so thankful uh, for them. Ross and I led that first worship service together in 2013, and we worked closely together for six years, uh, four of which were in the location downtown on the corner of Broad and King in our offices. After experiencing some early growth in those first few months, we moved our Sunday services to that great Westminster Abbey-like building, Moultrie Middle School, on Coleman Boulevard in Mount Pleasant. We were there for over five years. Uh, it was only five. It wasn't 15. I know the last two felt like uh, they were doubling in length, but uh, that's where we were for five years. How many of you joined the church during that time when we were at Moultrie Middle School? Okay, a good, a good number of you. Being at the middle school gave our members the opportunity to serve on the setup and breakdown crews, the nursery rotation, the welcome team, and in other practical ways like hosting fellowship groups in homes and small groups and welcoming visitors and so forth. Indeed, during this period, many of you served Christ Church behind the scenes in order to help establish a young church plant, a kind of sapling in the kingdom of God. You did all of this to the glory of God and for the building up of the church. It is true, of course, that Christ builds his church and he uses his ordinary means of grace to do that, the word, sacraments, and prayer. But he also uses the spiritual gifts of his people to strengthen and encourage and to build up one another. On this 10th anniversary, I am mindful of how God has used so many of you in all of these ways at Christ Church. In 2016, the Lord raised up uh, and we trained two faithful men, uh, Dr. Scott Buchanan and Mr. Keith Hester, to serve as our first ruling elders. Uh, and again, they are here with us today. With the ordination of ruling elders, we thus became a fully constituted church of the Presbyterian Church in America. Over the next seven years, God would raise up many more godly men to serve as elders and deacons of this body. Another milestone in the life of our church is when we transitioned to our new facility 
here at 486 Wando Park Boulevard. It was in 2020 during the pandemic under the servant leadership of Jake Earl and Ralph Charles and Kathy Patterson that we carried out a year-long comprehensive renovation. We moved into our new facility and held our first worship service in January of 2021. A few months ago, we added 50 chairs to our sanctuary due to recent growth. The hand of the Lord has been at work in our midst in numerous ways. Many others, of course, have served and are serving the church in significant ways. We think of Pastor Michael Bauer, who labored among us for over three years. And how could we fail to mention Ms. Alicia Williams? Um, I told Alicia this morning in the back that uh, this church would just go, uh, just sort of disband probably if she wasn't around. She is holding things together uh, uh, through ministering to our children in the nursery and um, and uh, she said, Pastor, you said uh, when this all started, it was just be for a short time. And uh, here we are a couple of years later. Well, that's just good leadership on my part, I think. <laughs> Knowing such wonderful people need to be in these uh, positions of leadership. But we do thank God for you. In January of last year, we hired Miss Rachel McIntosh as our Director of Media and Communications. And she has been such an extraordinary blessing to me and to this congregation. And we thank God uh, for you, Rachel. Of course, I could mention so many others, those who have served on the, the kitchen crew and those uh, who have served in the flower committee, Miss Helen Royal serving in those ways. I could go on and on. There are so many of you. Um, uh, uh, but on this special day, I, I especially want to mention uh, my wife and children. Um, I don't think I've ever sort of formally done this in 10 years, and if there's, not, if there's an appropriate time to do it, it's now. My wife, Marla, has been an exceedingly faithful and loving wife, mother, friend, and church member. I simply couldn't do what I do without her sacrificial love and constant encouragement and continuous prayers. No one truly understands the burdens of a pastor's family except a pastor's family. Marla bears those burdens with such grace and kindness and constancy. And I thank God for you, Marla. You are my crown. I also want to give thanks for my dear children, Mary Hannah and Hans. They've been at the center of this work since 2013 when their ages were just 10 and 7. And I thank God for their love and steady commitment all of these years as we've opened our home and lives to the work of gospel ministry. Beloved Christ Church, over the past 10 years, we have had over 1,000 Lord's Day services. Over 1,000 Lord's Day services. We've had hundreds and hundreds of weekly Bible studies and monthly fellowship gatherings. Approximately 600 uh, to 700 people have joined the church over these years. And Charleston's just a turnstile. People coming and going all the time. One, one friend of mine said, it's like ministering to a parade. They're just coming, and you're sort of ministering to them, and then they're gone. Oh, there's some new people. Okay. And you're just doing that. It's like that, isn't it? Uh, especially here in this area with so many coming and going. I've preached over 700 sermons through about a dozen books of the Bible. Hundreds of other sermons have been preached by our associate pastors. Uh, we've done multi-year series through the Gospel of Luke and Acts and half of Romans. Other more topical series have included studies on the Holy Spirit, the Christian family, the disciplines of grace, the 12 foundations of a healthy church. The Lord has used his word 
to strengthen our faith, to comfort us, to grow us in our walks with the Lord. Many children have been born into this church and are growing up in this church. Last year alone, 13 children were born into our congregation. Over the years, we've seen scores of individuals and couples and families become serious disciples of Jesus Christ, those whose hearts have become ablaze to commune with God and share the gospel with others. There's so much more that can be said, but I want to segue into our text by saying this. The message, please, please hear this. The message that has tied together all of the preaching and teaching and ministry at Christ Church from the very beginning, that which has been at the very foundation and motivation of all that we do is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the gospel, the good news that God saves sinners by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Some of you who are there from my very first sermon in this congregation know that it was on John 3.16. John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. The gospel has been at the very foundation of our preaching, our teaching, our worship, our Sunday school classes, our Bible studies, vacation Bible schools, outreach, women's fellowships, mission trips, retreats, small groups, prayer meetings, weddings, funerals, baptisms, officer training, membership classes, monthly officer meetings, nursery ministry, kids catechism classes, and on and on and on. It is the gospel that we are proclaiming. Through all of it, dear ones, this gospel, which has been at the foundation of the church from day one, it must remain so. It must remain at the very foundation of our church. The true gospel has been the foundation from day one, and it must remain so. And so by God's grace, in the face of fiery trials and opposition, we must continue to hold fast the confession of our hope, as our text says, without wavering. Without wavering. We are here today because of the gospel. Because a new and living way has been opened to us through Jesus' death. Because we have a great high priest in heaven. And because he who promised is what? Faithful. He who promised is? Faithful. He is faithful. And isn't that the focus and theme of our text for this morning? A text that is rich in gospel truth and application. I chose it mainly for this reason that we would, as a congregation, be reminded first and foremost of the steadfast love and faithfulness of God and to heed the exhortation to hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. There are three exhortations that we see here um, from our passage. They are uh, the three let us verses, verses, not L-E-T-T-U-C-E, but L-E-T-U-S. The three let us verses found in our text. You see them there, these three exhortations. Let us draw near with confidence. Let us hold fast to the confession And let us consider how to stir up one another. Let us draw near with confidence. Let us hold fast to the confession. Let us consider how to stir up one another. First of all, 
draw near. Let us draw near with confidence. Dear ones, there are many things happening in this world today that rightly concern us. Things that often capture our attention, our primary attention. We worry, for instance, about the unrestricted growth of artificial intelligence. What does all this mean? We worry about the direction of our country and the uncertainties of the next presidential election. Our teetering economy makes us nervous about days to come. Questions concerning these issues and so many others are important, of course. They are significant. But as important as these matters are, they pale in comparison to the eternally consequential question, the most important question of all, that is, how can sinful man be reconciled to holy God? How can sinful man be reconciled to holy God is the question that the author to the Hebrews has been considering and answering since the opening chapter of this epistle. And his answer, beloved, is Jesus. Jesus is how sinful man can be reconciled to holy God. It's through faith in Jesus, not through good works, not through Jewish religious rites and ceremonies and through family lineage and bloodlines, not through formal church membership, Salvation from sin and judgment only comes through personal, saving faith in Jesus Christ. Do you, dear one, have personal, saving faith in Jesus Christ? If not, you must have that to be saved. All by grace. But that is the point of our text. It is through Christ's shed blood that we receive the forgiveness of not some or most but all of our sins. The Hebrew Christians to whom this letter was originally written were wavering in this regard. They were returning to their old Jewish ways and customs and practices, including, as some scholars believe, depending on the date of the book, to the ceremonial worship of the temple. This wavering was in part due to persecution. These early Christians, these early Hebrew Christians were suffering for their faith. So they were going back to their former, more comfortable Jewish ways in worship. But this was essentially to abandon Christ and the gospel. It was nothing short of apostasy. The author of Hebrews explains in chapter 10 that the old covenant sacrifices in the temple were typological and temporary. And because they were typological, pointing to something greater than themselves, and temporary, they could never take away sins. These temporary sacrifices always foreshadowed something greater, something real, something substantive, something final. Indeed, they were designed from the very start to be obsolete when God's Messiah broke onto the scene and became our final sacrifice. Look with me at verse 12 in our text. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. For all time he offered himself. And he sat down. When you get home, you sit down. When my dad would come home from work after a long day of covering a football game or whatever he was doing as a sports writer, he would come down and he would sit down. 
because he was done with his work for the day. Christ is done with his redeeming work. He sits down at the right hand of God. For all time, a single sacrifice for sins. All the priests of the tabernacle and later the temple made sacrifices perpetually. They repeatedly offered the same sacrifices over and over, day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, decade after decade. They were always busy, always standing, always making endless sacrifices. But Jesus offered just one sacrifice. He offered himself. And he offered himself for you and for me. And he sat down at God's right hand. His single offering did what the other countless sacrifices failed to do. Namely, it atoned for sin. It paid the debt of our sin in full. It purchased forgiveness. It restored us to fellowship with God through faith. All of the blood that was spilled in the sacrificial system in the temple was designed to foreshadow the spilled blood of Jesus on Calvary. What can wash away our sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make us whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Only the blood of Jesus could truly pay for our sins. Therefore, to go back to the old Jewish ways would be like a graduate student returning to the second grade. What's he doing here? He's going for his Ph.D. Why has he just entered the second grade classroom to work on simple addition? When you have Jesus, the great high priest and sacrifice for sins, you don't go back to the priestly system and the sacrifice of animals. Isaac Watts put it this way, Not all the blood of beasts on Jewish altars slain could give the guilty conscience peace or wash away the stain. But Christ the heavenly lamb takes all our sins away, a sacrifice of nobler name and richer blood than they. Hebrews 10, 1 through 18, the section which precedes our text, teaches us that there is a once-for-allness to the atoning sacrifice of Jesus. And that is where our confidence in drawing near to God is meant to be anchored. Not in our feelings, not in our works, not in our family heritage, not in our status, not in our education, but anchored in the blood shed for us on Calvary, anchored in Christ. In light of this, look with me at verses 19 through 22. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that Jesus opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Here we have temple language, don't we? We're meant to picture it. In the Old Covenant, only the priests could draw near to God. Only the priests could go into the holy places. They would make perpetual sacrifices on behalf of God's people. These priests would serve in the holy places in the temple. And once a year, you'll know, on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would enter through the curtain and make sacrifice, throwing blood on, sprinkling blood on the Ark of the Covenant, the mercy seat where the presence of holy God dwelt. 
We learn about this from Leviticus 16. But here's the thing. The entire sacrificial system that went on for centuries, millennia, the entire sacrificial system, the entire Jewish ceremonial system was insufficient. It was never adequate to purchase our redemption. It was never good enough to reconcile sinners to God. The priests themselves were sinful. The blood of the animals were, was inadequate. Some, something, or rather someone better, had to come. And that someone was and is Jesus Christ. That's the point here. A new and a living way has been made to God through Jesus' death on the cross. With confidence, beloved, we can now enter the true holy place. It was one thing on this earth in the temple to enter the holy of holies. It's another thing altogether because some of those priests were not even those uh, we're not even men of faith. We know about the great apostasy of Israel and all the priests that were living wicked lives and making sacrifices to Molech and, and, and syncretizing uh, uh, the Old Testament law with all of the surrounding nation's beliefs. And so we know a lot of these priests were wicked men. But we ourselves, by grace through faith, have a, a greater blessing than those priests. We enter into the Holy of Holies, through the blood of Christ with such clear teaching in the New Testament. We have the book of Hebrews. Christ is the high priest over his church, and as our mediator, he gives us access to God. We have a way to God. We have a way to God, but it's not, it's not through how good you are. It's through Christ. It's through his shed blood. That's the point. Why then would anyone want to go back to the old covenant ceremonial system when by faith they possessed the very one that the ceremonial system was designed to foreshadow? And so in light of this perfect sacrifice made by our great high priest who is now seated at God's right hand, verse 22, look there, it says, let us draw near to God with a true heart in full assurance of faith. Beloved Christ Church, this is the salvation that Christ purchased for us on the cross. This is our gospel privilege. As we've learned in Romans 8, we are, by His grace, redeemed and adopted into His family. We are His sons, namely the inheritors of all of the blessings of salvation, co-heirs with God, co-heirs with Christ. We are His if God is for us, who can be against us? What shall we say to these things? No one can separate us from his love. We have this gospel privilege to draw near to God with a true heart in full assurance of faith. Again, not full assurance of faith in ourselves, in our feelings, in our thoughts, in our performance, but in Christ. We have a relationship with God that no one can sever. Let us then draw near to God with confidence and sincerity and with the full assurance of faith. Let us draw near to him with confidence and sincerity and the assurance of faith, knowing we've been sprinkled clean by the blood of Jesus and regenerated by the Holy Spirit as if we've been washed with pure water. This brings us to our second exhortation. Let us hold fast to the confession. Look, at me, look with me at verse 23. 
Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Beloved, it um, is obvious, isn't it, that the world is a very different place today in 2023 than it was in 2013 when this church started. Think of how much has changed in our world. You don't have to be a sociologist to recognize that our culture has become radically secularized. Christian morality can no longer be taken for granted in the West, and hostility toward the church is growing. These cultural trends and pressures have caused some believers to waver in their faith and commitment to Jesus. Indeed, there is a temptation to slowly capitulate to the culture's demands and to hold to our confession more loosely. Like the Hebrew Christians returning to Judaism, believers in our day can be enticed by the siren calls of the world to abandon the promises and truth of God's word and the gospel that was once so precious to them. Perhaps there are some in this room this morning who are wavering. Are you wavering, dear Christian, in your faith? Perhaps it's due to earthly trials and suffering. Or maybe it's because the constant pressure, intimidation, and lives of the world have just worn you down and loosened your grip on the confession of your hope in the gospel. If this is the case, the Holy Spirit exhorts you this morning from His Word to tighten your grip on the gospel, to hold fast the confession of your hope without wavering, and to do so with the assurance that the one who made these gospel promises to us is faithful to keep those promises. We hold fast to Jesus with the wonderful knowledge that He is holding fast to us. Amen? He is holding fast to us. Jesus explains it this way in John 10, 27 through 30. Look there with me if you have your Bibles. John 10, 27 through 30. In John 10, 27 through 30, Jesus speaks these comforting words. John 10, 27. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. It's the first mark of a Christian. They hear Christ's voice in Scripture, not audibly, but by faith. They hear his voice in Scripture, and they recognize that voice as the one who died for them, and who rose for them, and who lives for them now, and is returning to bring them home. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me by his sovereign electing grace, is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Think of this. Let this sink in for a minute, dear Christian. Perhaps you who are struggling, perhaps if you're wavering, remember this. Christ has you, the Father has you, and the Spirit indwells you. No one can snatch you out of God's hand. And so, like the Father who grabs his child's hand walking across a busy road says, Hold on tight, son, 
and yet he is holding on so tightly that that child tried to get away. The father has the child. May flail around, may try to get away, but no. The father will never let him go. This is how God is with us. He holds on to us by his grace. So let us not live in fear, dear ones. Let us not be intimidated by the opposition of the world. Rather, let us hold fast to the confession of our hope, the confession of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for he who promised is faithful. It is out of the faithfulness and promises of God that Christ church was born. It is out of the faithfulness and promises of God fulfilled in the gospel that, that, that not only were we born, but we will continue into the future. John Owen puts it this way. The faithfulness of God and his promises is the great encouragement and support under our continual profession of our faith against all opposition. And so as we celebrate our 10-year anniversary, we celebrate, above all things, the faithfulness of God. He has been faithful to us, amen? So faithful. And this is what we need to remember as we launch into our next 10 years. He will continue to be faithful to us. For he who promised is faithful. And in light of this faithfulness, let us not waver. Rather, let us hold fast the confession of our hope, the confession of the gospel, the confession that is set forth for us in the Westminster Standards and in our Reformed Confession, that which Scripture teaches. Finally, and quickly, let us stir up one another. Look with me at verses 24 and 25. Let us stir up one another. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. Dear ones, Christianity was never intended to be lived out in isolation from the church. We are meant to grow together, to be sanctified in community with the means of grace in the gathered church. No, it's in isolation that we begin to wander from God. Some were wandering in this early church. And part of the reason was because they had neglected to meet together. It's apart from the worship and fellowship and discipleship of the church that we begin to stray. At first in our minds and then in our hearts and then in our actions and lives. And so in the light of this good news that a new and living way has been opened through the blood of Jesus, the final sacrifice, and in light of the exhortations to draw near to God and to hold fast the confession, the writer exhorts us, to consider how we might stir up one another to love and good works and to encourage one another. This is about as practical as it gets. We need each other to persevere. We need each other to persevere. We need each other to carry on. We need fellow believers to stir up and encourage our hearts to love and good works, to stir, up, to, to stir us up to love our spouse, to raise our children in the Lord, to carry out our callings unto the Lord, to be committed to the church. We need one another to stir up our hearts. There were some in the early church making it a habit to neglect church attendance. They were absent from the worship and fellowship of God's people. It may have been because of fear 
It may have been because of laziness or worldliness or distractedness or a return to their Jewish ways. Whatever the reason, it wasn't a good one. Dear ones, in order to persevere through trials and cultural opposition, we need to be together. It's one of the points that a lot of Christian uh, philosophers and sociologists and theologians are making that in a day where the culture is bearing down upon the church, bringing pressure, bringing soft, what may turn into hard persecution, we need to stick together in our worship and service to the Lord. And we do all of this, dear ones, in view of the day of the Lord. Let us not get overwhelmed and overly distracted by the bad news of this world, but rather let us respond to these inspired exhortations in the joyful anticipation of the day when Christ will return, when he will wipe every tear from our eyes, when he will remove every anxiety from our hearts and remove and destroy all remaining sin in our flesh, and take us to our eternal home. This very week, 10 years ago, Christ's church was born. We have so much to be thankful for. He has done so many marvelous things in our midst. But let us remember this morning to continue on as we started, grounded in the gospel and the faithfulness of God, drawing near to God by faith through the blood of Christ holding fast to the confession of our hope and encouraging one another as the day of Christ's return draws near. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you. We thank you for your amazing grace. We thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you that you promised are faithful and will never leave or forsake us. Oh, Lord, we pray that by your grace we would respond to these three exhortations for your glory and for the health of this church in the days to come. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. I invite you to please stand.